Okay, I have to tell you a funny story before we start. Well, I guess I should at least tell you who I am. My name is Sarah Buino. I am the host of Conversations with a Wounded Healer, as well as being a psychotherapist here in Chicago. So you'll get why I tell this story once I read the bio of my guest today. So there, there's... <laughs> I can't, I can't even get it out without laughing. So there's a restaurant just down the street from me. I think it's just even called the Chicago Diner. I don't even remember the name of it. It's something like super generic. But my brother told me this story that he went there very late one night. It's like super dinery. And so you only go there like after a long, a long illustrious evening at the wee hours of the morning. And so he walked in... <laughs> See, I can't, I can't even get through the story without laughing. So he walked in and I think he looked up at the menu that was on the wall and saw quote unquote, the slinger. And he turns to the person behind the counter and said, what's the slinger? And literally he said, I don't know if it was everyone in the joint, but at least two or three people in the joint started chanting slinger, slinger, slinger. <laughs> okay. That has Almost nothing to do with our guest today, Dr. Chantel Thomas, except for the fact that she works in Slinger, Wisconsin. So when I drove to the manor for the first time and I saw that I was arriving in Slinger, inside I just went, Slinger, Slinger, Slinger. So that's the story. So let me tell you about Dr. Chantel Thomas. She's awesome. She's a PhD, a clinical psychologist specializing in addiction treatment, trauma, and health psychology. She is the executive clinical director at the Manor in Slinger, Wisconsin. And Dr. Thomas provides daily guidance to the clinical team in addition to the individual time she spends with their guests and families. So please enjoy this interview with Chantel Thomas. Hello, Chantel. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you? It's been a busy week. I feel like I'm surfing on top of everything right now. And at some point this weekend, I'm going to crash into the sand. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? Not all surfing ends in crashing, Sarah. Well, if I were surfing, it would. <laughs> but that's such a good therapist reframe. Thank you. My pleasure. So just to tell the listeners how we know each other, did we just first meet at the Freud Buddha conference last year? Was that it? I remember, well, this is probably not a surprise to people who've met you, but you had an amazing rainbow going on mm -hmm. in your hair. And I think that's how I first saw you. And I think it is at that conference that we connected the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to let you talk about, you know, what the manner is and stuff. But Chantel is an amazing speaker, therapist, clinical director, all sorts of amazing things in the therapy world. And her coworker, Pam, who I've also tried to get on the podcast, Pam is amazing and I love her. And so that's how I just decided to love Chantel because Pam loved her. And so it was like love by association. And so that's how we met. And now here we are. It's a nice way to connect with people on the merits of the connections that, right. that they have. So that's a lovely way to connect. Would you tell people who you are and, and what you do? Absolutely. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I am the executive clinical director of a residential treatment facility known as The Manor. And we are located in Slinger, Wisconsin, which is right near the Kettle Moraine Mountains and the Ice Age Trail. I don't know if you've hiked it, but it's, no. it's supposed to be an amazing hiking trail. 
It's a small, more intimate residential setting where we focus on primary substance use disorders and co-occurring mental health issues with a specialization in the area of trauma. I come from a little bit of a background that was immersed in the idea of looking at the intersection of medical issues as Mm. it relates to psychological issues. Well, so many traumas happen via the healthcare system. (laughs) No doubt. And the majority of reasons that people seek out medical help are actually problems, uh, particularly in in the primary care setting, are problems that do not have easy solutions from the medical community that are mediated by other types of, you know, psychological issues or autonomic dysregulation, stress, arousal problems. Chronic pain is a a particular area of specialization for me, too. I'm curious because I know nothing about your backstory and the how did you become a therapist story. So I'd love to hear that journey. Absolutely. So I grew up in Southern California. My father is an addiction medicine physician. So I started oh. out as a general practitioner. But my dad is very curious about addiction because he saw in his primary care practice that a good percentage of the people that would come meet with him ultimately were struggling with addiction. And so he was actually part of the first group of physicians in the country to sit for the addiction medicine boards. Oh, wow. So he's, he's really on the forefront of that. And I think that made me curious pretty early on. And in undergrad, did not study psychology. I was an English lit major, which actually English literature is a really appropriate thing to study if you're interested in psychology and human behavior, because it teaches you the concept of manifest and latent content so that you read a story and then you think about, okay, what is a story really about? Which is not that different from, Mm -hmm. you know, having a conversation in a therapeutic context. Absolutely. And then I ultimately decided to get my master's degree in psychology. I'd always been interested in potentially being in the helping profession, but Mm -hmm. wasn't quite certain if being a therapist was the path. And so I, I kind of dipped my toe in there a bit. I learned enough to know how little I knew. Yes. And, and so mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to go to a doctoral program that had a subtrack in health psychology. And that's where I started focusing in particular on the concept of chronic pain and what the implications were for having health professionals and behavioral health and mental mm-hmm. health providers involved in that treatment journey. And then I got a chance to be the program director for a woman's trauma center that was a small six-bed facility that was just for women with substance abuse and trauma. And that led to me thinking, wow, trauma is really amazing and and how pervasive it is in this work. And I want to learn more about it. So I, I moved to Madison, Wisconsin from California to finish my doctorate. I was part of a team that essentially rounded through the hospital, all the medical surgical units, and it's a level one trauma hospital. So for people who've been through traumatic accidents, spinal cord injuries, or major orthopedic injuries, brain injuries that ended up on the rehab units of the floor, not addiction rehab, but physical rehab. We were part of the team that would help with the mental health aspect and the coping with whatever condition that they were struggling with or rehabilitating from, which had a really big influence on my understanding of how to be with people in some pretty intense moments of darkness right? and kind of coming to terms with really difficult diagnoses or 
you know, coming to after a car accident and not realizing that your loved one or someone else in the car didn't make it. So that was really intense work, but was really powerful, had a very big impact on my understanding of what people might need in those moments of crisis. And I then from there went into community health and worked at three different community health clinics in Madison, Access Community Health Center as an integrated behavioral health consultant. So for about eight years, I worked side by side with physicians, helping them figure out how to manage all of the issues that come through the primary care door. You know, say you go in to see your doctor and you have a cough or a cold, but you also talk about not being able to sleep. And then you also talk about feeling sad a lot and the physician will walk out of the room and then grab one of us and bring us in. And we would meet with patients while they were meeting with their doctor for 20, 30 minutes, come up with a plan and figure out what's needed. That also had a really profound effect for me in understanding on a population-based level, how do we get the folks who have very limited access to mental health care more access and within that context, myself and another physician started an addiction medicine clinic in the primary care clinic called the health promotions clinic where people were coming and then they needed more specialized help in the area of addiction or accessing addiction treatment services, Mm. which was also a really amazing experience to see how can work when everything is integrated under the same roof. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. You have a really unique insight into the way that doctors think, (laughs) having grown up with one, and then also working with them in, in integrated settings. And I think that is extremely unique for people who might not be in the mental health field or, or in the medical field who are listening, unfortunately, we don't always talk to each other. And one of the barriers, at least I found from the social work perspective, is the medical hierarchy and the way that, that doctors are trained can get in the way of the humanity of, of helping other people. And that's not to demonize doctors. I actually, I just had a conversation with Lissa Rankin. Do you know who she is? The name sounds familiar, but I don't know who she is. Yeah, she was a doc uh, who was trained at Northwestern OBGYN and basically just recognized how toxic the medical system is and and Mm. training. And she ended up quitting everything, walking away from it. And now she's kind of this like spiritual person, (laughs) like motivational speaker. But she especially works with doctors to try to heal Mm. the trauma of the medical training. And, and so I, I guess I'm really curious from your perspective, since you've you've had this long experience of working with doctors, like what do you see that needs to be changed in, in healthcare in general, which I'm lumping mental mm. health on top of that. And so it, no big deal, right? Chantelle, you don't have to solve all the world's problems, but you do <laughs> in a 20 second soundbite, go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think I have a little bit of a biased perspective because... The majority of the exposure that I have had, I want to differentiate family physicians out almost a little bit because I Mm. feel like it's a very unique path for Mm. a physician to take in that people that are drawn to family physician work are people who tend to want to really build long-term relationships Mm. with people. Mm -hmm. I was just so consistently surprised and delighted with the fact that so many of them cared so much and that they actually were interested in long-term investments in their Mm -hmm. patients. And I think the pressures of productivity in any given medical system is the death of quality connection at times. So I think that that's maybe one of the biggest albatross, albatrosses, albatross (laughs) I. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Albatrosseruses. We'll make up a new animal. 
you know, wonderful things have happened with the electronic health records, but Bert technology facilitates, but it also burdens in a different mm-hmm. way because the capacity of a person to do more and track more right. accelerates. One way to look at improving healthcare is to really look at physician burnout because yes. I actually think what a provider has accessible within themselves dictates a lot of what they can give back in terms of patient care. And so this this grinding wheel of productivity and measurable games and you know the kind of the whole capitalistic endeavor I actually think doctors are capable of a lot more than the system allows them to do. And Mm -hmm. I think it would be really phenomenal if there was more training and education around addiction and around mental health in general. I mean, a lot of Mm -hmm. physicians will go through their programs just not receiving extensive information about mental health unless they specialize into psychiatry, which is ironic because the majority of psychotropic medications are actually provided by family physicians, right? right? So hence the evolution of integrated behavioral health care, which is, you know, the idea of putting behavioral health providers side by side in medical settings. I actually think that's a big part of what revolutionizes healthcare potentially is having a much more integrated way of practicing. You know, what happens at UW with the health psychology department shouldn't be a one-off kind of special program. It should be part of what is integrated into all hospital systems because- I'm going a little bit on, off on a diatribe, but Do it. the wasted money that we spend on healthcare because mm-hmm. of medical errors or basically the thing that I saw in the hospital happening over and over again wasn't necessarily medical errors. It was that physicians had something to communicate. Patients often didn't understand what that was. Mm-hmm. There wasn't sufficient time for integration mm-hmm. of that message. And there were really obvious practical barriers to the implementation of whatever medical plan was being put in place. Mm -hmm. So you have people that are really smart and capable coming up with great plans given to people who don't really understand the plans or the rationale for it, and that the barriers aren't eliminated to implementing whatever that plan is. So in a lot of ways, I feel like we have the tools to make things better existing within the system if there is actually more attention being spent on whether the right message is being communicated. And that's really what I saw as my role in the hospital was basically to be a translator for Mm -hmm. patients. Despite the fact that everybody was speaking the same language, they were not speaking the same language. Yeah. Which is, you know, is an interesting concept in and of itself, like the way that we use language when we talk with people, the presumptions we have about even the language we use in therapy, right? Yes. And and Mm -hmm. here in my work at the manor, there's a lot of terms that we as therapists get really comfortable with using Mm -hmm. that are loaded in for us with certain meaning and value that doesn't necessarily translate to the experience of the person who's just walked in the door. So that translational piece, I think having that lens of awareness in every aspect of what's happening on the healthcare front and also just in the therapy delivery system, I think that's also really important. I mean, we're doing a thing here at the manor where we're asking our therapists to pause kind of at the end of their session, you know, 10 minutes out and say, okay, let's talk about what you're taking away from this session. Mm -hmm. Give me your summary of what you think just happened in here. That's a great idea. It's really fascinating because a lot of the time what someone takes away from the experience and what you think you've translated are very different things, even when you think you're tracking really closely because, you know, someone's whole internal emotional world is happening at the same time. And they're navigating their internal voices, plus their external voice, what they choose to say to you, their internal sense of judgment, 
And so there is really this need to make sure that just because we feel good at the end of the session, it doesn't mean that things have connected in a way that we all are working towards the same goal. And it's funny, my my therapist also is a shamanic practitioner. And so she sometimes talks about things that are so way out there. And my husband used to ask like, oh, how did your session with Susan go? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm healed. I I don't know what happened, but something amazing. And so she actually has started asking like, what do you hear now? And I'm like, oh shit, I have to actually put this into words. Fuck. But I want to go back to what you said about productivity getting in the way, because I think that is definitely not unique to just healthcare, but certainly mental health too. And also, you know, one of the conversations I continue to have over and over recently is about, you know, the addiction industry and how it's so difficult for private facilities to continue to provide good care because of the the cost, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think people understand that when they're paying like 10,000 or so to go to a treatment center, that's just almost barely covering the cost that it, that it actually costs yeah. to really treat somebody from the holistic perspective that we're really talking about and that we want to do. And so, of course, a lot of big corporations will swoop in and then you know, buy up these treatment centers. And then the focus becomes on getting beds, right? Getting people into the beds. And I don't know what's going to need to happen in our industry to be able to kind of shift back to this client centered work when at the same time we do deserve to make money in this profession because we're working really fucking hard. Mm. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, especially given Mm -hmm. in the manner is still private, right? Yes. Yeah. God bless. We're very, very fortunate in that regard. And it was actually a part of what I looked into pretty carefully before I decided to come on board here because I, this work is far too challenging and it's really inspiring work. It's really exciting yes. work. It's really transformative work. But the flip side of that is it it, it takes a lot out of you. And so mm-hmm. I've worked in environments where I felt as much time fighting the system as I yes. did like fighting for my clients. And it I know that formula doesn't work for me. So I knew that one of the, the pieces about coming here that felt really important is that I would have autonomy and I would have the ability mm-hmm. to make decisions about who could come into our facility. And um, mm-hmm. very simple things like ensuring that the admissions department communicates with the clinical department, right? And right. so that doesn't necessarily happen when the entire goal is to just fill beds. And certainly there right. has to be a certain level of sustainability, but I really feel like a big part of our responsibility as providers is to just do a better job educating the population about yes. what is needed and helping consumers to make better choices about what they're actually signing on for. And yes. it's definitely something that I feel like I have not done enough work on. And it is, you know, it's definitely part of my goal is how to help people become more discriminating about what is available and what mm-hmm. they might need so that mm-hmm. if there are programs that have shifted into a monetization focus that consumers are capable of asking the right questions to make sure that they know what they're getting and yep any programs that are kind of talking about their success rates i i always mm-hmm. i get very <laughs> nervous <laughs> Same. Like what's the, there's one place in California that says we can cure addiction. Yeah. I know which place you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you guys. (laughs) 
just fuck you. Like, what else do you say to that? Like, that's ridiculous. Oh, it's so hard because yeah, like, of course, everybody wants a cure, right? Mm -hmm. Like, of course, everybody wants a cure and wants a solution. And the part that part about that that feels so dangerous is just so if you offer a cure, and that's what you say you provide, and when it doesn't, quote, unquote, Mm -hmm. work for that patient or that client, the level of shame and demoralization Mm -hmm. that comes in the aftermath of that just feels so terrifying and dangerous, right? So yeah, how do you how do you put out a message that helps people educate themselves? I mean, the challenge too that a lot of the addiction hotline agencies are linked into treatment centers. So mm-hmm. it's a really tricky thing, right? I mean, because it yeah. is a it's a business, it's an industry and I think that's one part of it, though, is being able to help people understand what kinds of questions to ask. Yes. Because ultimately, the population that's being served, if it's educated in the right way, will dictate what is available, right? Right. That's the hope, right? But how do you really reach people and how do we... How do we make sure that therapists are educated on how to guide people in this process? Because I mean, that's another part of it is that, you know, I talk about core addiction curriculum for all physicians. Mm -hmm, The mm -hmm. same thing needs to be happening in the therapy programs that exist and working as a, a therapist without any sort of lens of awareness on the addiction piece. I understand why people would specialize in certain areas, but at least know enough to be able to know when something is happening to then be able to move people into a different environment. And and sometimes just don't think that's happening. And that's what I've decided is kind of part of my mission in this world is to educate more therapists around this process. And just to give consumers an example of what happened. So I have a loved one who needed to get into treatment and I knew that they needed residential treatment. They said they wanted intensive outpatient, but I assumed that, you know, well, admissions will of course talk to them and help them recognize that they need something. So this person went to one place and said, I need IOP. And they said, oh, well, we don't really do what you need. So why don't you go to this other place? And they kept getting bounced around to different places and finally came back to me and said, why won't anybody help me? And because I know people in the industry, I picked up the phone and I started calling people that I knew who worked for those treatment centers and said, you guys have fucked it up. You get this person into care right the fuck now. And it shouldn't be like that. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. have had to pull in big guns in order to get Mm -hmm. somebody who wants help into help. It's just therapists don't know enough about when to refer. Also to, let's be honest, there's ego, right? Like I've worked with adjunctly with, with some therapists and we have brilliant relationships where we get to, you know, foster like real growth with clients. And then I've worked with therapists before who are so territorial and they're like, get your hands off my client. I can do everything mm. they need. And mm. that is so detrimental too. I know it's so tricky, right? I mean, there's mm. plenty of suffering to go around that, <laughs> right. needs, that needs amelioration, <laughs> right? I mean, right. it is, it's a really challenging thing. Like how do you hold on to your integrity? Mm-hmm. How do you remain heart centered and not ego driven in terms yes. of your agenda? I mean, I feel like almost every conversation I end up having about what's needed ultimately comes back to the discussion about doing your own work and being able to have accountability partners in your life that help you understand more about what it means to be aware of your own blind spots. Preach. And that's a beautiful segue into (laughs) the conversation about healing and, and wounded healer. So when you think of the term healer, does that apply to you and what you do? 
it's such an interesting question because I have no issue saying that I am here to guide people on the journey of healing. But if you ask me if I'm a healer, it's hard to say yes to that. Mm-hmm. And there almost feels like there's a sacred quality that surrounds that concept that I don't know if, and quite honestly, I don't, I don't know if I feel totally worthy of a title like that. It feels pretty, mm-hmm. and it feels like it carries a lot to it that I don't know if I completely understand it if I'm, you know, aligned with that. I think also maybe part of what, what I struggle with with that is that I believe that people have within themselves, and this was definitely influenced for me by the work of internal family systems and, and Dick Schwartz's work on the concept of everybody having their own internal healer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with IFS. And yeah. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So this concept, you know, your authenticity, your true self, your capital S self is part of the work that we're doing therapeutically. And particularly when it comes to trauma work is helping people connect on a core level with mm-hmm. their their own true sense of self, their authenticity. And that what exists in the core of people is the thing that ultimately moves them towards healing. And so mm-hmm. I think maybe the the term healer is hard for me because it almost feels like it puts the majority of the energetic shifting that happens coming Mm -hmm. from me as Mm -hmm. opposed to holding space for someone to access their own healing, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And that's not out of alignment with a lot of answers that I get for that. It just feels like it takes too much responsibility for what happened. Right, right. And it's like, we already have enough fucking responsibility, right? I don't need to take more. So how about wounded healer? I feel people that are capable of greatness and their ability to walk alongside of someone in their pain are people that have had their own wounds Mm -hmm. and are actively looking at what their own healing looks like. So Mm -hmm. because I feel like most people who are looking inward have access to their own darkness, for me, that's what I need when I need to be helped is I need to be sitting alongside of someone who knows to hold space for that. Right. And the path of human existence is darkness and light. Right. And so Mm -hmm. someone who only speaks from a place of light, I have a very hard time trusting. Yeah. (laughs) Quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in my experience has been in working with the clients here in particular is that if people energetically are coming towards them with an agenda around positivity or agenda around, let me move you. It's the quickest way to shut people down. Mm -hmm. I actually heard this really interesting podcast interview with Ira Glass and Dak Shepard. And Mm. Dak Shepard was talking about the great acting. Bear with me because I'll I'll get back to you. Yeah, yeah. No, I love the diatribe. Do it. That really great actors are actually people that just know how to speak in their own voice. Yeah. And that literally just listening to the tone and tenor of someone's voice. So the really great actors when they are in interviews don't sound different than when they're acting. Mm-hmm. And those who really feel like they have to put something on, like the pitch of their voice, even the frequency at which they're talking shifts. And I thought that's so true. And I thought, wow, that's a really great supervision tool with therapists because I I notice it with my own clinicians. I'm always telling them to be really mindful of not using a therapy voice. Yes, yes. The therapy voice, which is also like a cousin to the waitress voice or the waiter voice, right? Oh, honey, did you need some more butter for your biscuits? 
Although that would just voice sounds fun to me. It's more like, hey, how are you doing? Right. right? So if you find yourself in affectation when you're trying to connect with someone, Mm -hmm. it just creates a barrier. And I have so much respect for the people that we treat. People are here not because they're not bright enough Mm -hmm. or smart enough or capable enough. In fact, I really rely on my clients to tell me quicker than anyone else when I've hired a new person, if something doesn't feel genuine, my clients will tell me before anything else. They'll be able to smell it a million miles away. Right. Especially in addiction, right? Oh my God. Which is part of why I love working in this field. Me too. Me too. Clients become soothsayers for what is true and what is authentic and they can tell the difference so quickly. And I I Mm -hmm. genuinely feel like, and this is, you know, this kind of does speak about like, okay, what can we do better in our healthcare system? But also as therapists, like there should be curriculum that's devoted to the pursuit of authenticity. Like what does it mean to be authentically connected to yourself? And and some of that Mm -hmm. can happen in therapy, but not necessarily because a lot of times people use therapy as an opportunity to vent or, Mm -hmm. you know, to kind of talk through things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is helping to guide you back into, you know, your own authenticity, your own vulnerability. I mean, Brene Brown's work is popularized, Mm -hmm. normalized, hopefully a little bit the concept of vulnerability and empowered people through the work she's doing and talking about shame. I think we need more of that, right? In the work with the responsibility of therapists to make sure that they know the difference. And it can be really easy to lose sight of it. And truthfully, I will credit Brene Brown till the day I die for giving me that permission to be the person that I am as a therapist instead of the therapist I thought I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Preach. It's so important. So what has your healing looked like? And feel free to take that where wherever you'd like. Hmm. Well, it's, it's certainly been a long journey. I mean... What I've discovered is that most therapists, when they go to seek therapy, at least the the ones that I'm connected to, aren't interested in learning new techniques necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about learning new coping skills. It's about moving into yourself in a different way. One thing that I would say for me that has been a really powerful part of the journey has been learning how to shift my conversations and therapy to a process space and get out of content, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Can you explain that, though, for listeners who might not know what you mean by that? It's actually one of the things I focus a lot on on with our therapist here Mm -hmm. is so when you stay on a content level with the client, it means that you stay at the level of dialogue that's just about what they're saying. And when you shift to a process level, you're speaking about what you feel happening in the room, but isn't being articulated. Mm -hmm. Beautiful way to say that. So yeah, so that's, that's a big part of it. And if I shifted back into the language of parts, it's the ability to speak from, from the parts of me that usually just watch myself getting therapy and actually (laughs) ask those people to participate in in the process, if that makes sense, right? Definitely. This is another thing I say to our clients here all the time part of you that most needs help never goes through treatment. How do we invite in the parts that are most wounded? And that's, Mm. you have to ask yourself the same question when you see a therapist. And it's such a funny thing. I was talking with our clinicians the other day because most of our clinicians are in therapy here. 
which I, makes me very happy. But yes. I said, if you are driving to your therapy appointment, coming up with things to talk about, mm-hmm. you need to take a moment to reflect on the purpose of therapy. Like, right. what should I talk about? Like, let me come up with things to fill space mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the experience of just being with yourself with another person and talking about that and the discomfort of that. And what happens if I'm exposed in this moment? What Mm -hmm. happens if you really see all of me? That's a muscle that has to be exercised. And for me, part of the healing journey is making sure that I can connect myself with people who know how to tolerate that. Yes. And not only how to tolerate that, invite that in. And that is not an easy task because I think people can be really uncomfortable with the experience of therapeutic tension and also just with affect alone. I mean, the desire to shift people before they're ready to be shifted Mm -hmm. or even to move them into a verbal process when that's not what's needed. And I think things Mm -hmm. are shifting in our in our culture and certainly in the therapeutic communities that I'm connected to, even the act of handing someone a tissue is communicating a message, right? Exactly. That (laughs) has always been my biggest pet peeve. Do not give people tissues. They can ask for it if they need it. (laughs) Do not stop their crying. (laughs) Like, are you handing yourself a tissue or are you Uh handing the client a tissue? Uh Because that's pretty... That's always one of my group rules and people never understood it. And that's exactly why. For me, healing has really been to be able to do that. And it's also about being able to take home what you're trying to imbue in your work. Like, I mean, it is one of the coolest things about being a therapist. I think it's also one of the scariest things about being a therapist is the idea that what you do in your work has to translate through in your personal life. Mm -hmm. And thus, when you're in crisis in your personal life, it can feel really scary as a therapist because like, How do you appropriately contain that? And I think some people don't realize that your own vulnerability can sometimes also be a really powerful tool to kind of ground you into the reality of what matters. And I feel Mm -hmm. like your clients can sense that as long as you know how it's not leak all over them in the process. And that I think takes a lot of, at least for me, when I've been in times in crisis, knowing that I have the people at home and around me to support me is the best way that I've been able to balance that for myself when I know that I'm struggling and I can show up and tell my clients, you know what, I'm struggling, but I'm here for you in this hour. But when I go home, I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time with my husband crying on his shoulder. You know, I think clients do have a deep respect for that honesty and that authenticity. It ultimately kind of had to address my own narcissism around Mm. not what would happen for me is if I would see cracks in the therapist I was working with, my fear would say to me, this person can't help you, right? Yeah. If I see in you that you're not perfectly capable at all times, then, you know, there would be a very self-protective thing that would happen. This is probably kinder to say self-protective than narcissistic, but it feels <laughs> in, in the moment it felt a little like, mm-hmm. Well, what kind of a person are you? Like people need to be fallible, right? But I think there is such deep fear around, am I too much? Like, can you, can you really handle me and what, you know, which is obviously very young narratives for a lot of people, but it's a very consistent narrative for a lot of the clients that I work with. I don't know if you can really handle this and what happens if I bear my soul to you and I open myself up. And you ultimately disappoint me or you basically send me really strong messages, even if you're not saying them, that you can't handle me. Right. It's a really big risk for people. And I have been in that path. So I I feel like 
you know, you don't want to be so self-referential as a clinician that, you know, it's all about you. But if you can touch back into the courage that it takes to really lay yourself open in that way, and then think that's why I just have so much respect for people who commit themselves to going to a deeper level, whether it be they're doing intensives or they're doing therapy more than once a week, you're taking this risk, but it's a really heroic journey. Like, to unarmor yourself in that way is, mm-hmm. is really scary. But what you stand to gain from that is, is transformative. Yeah. We've covered a lot of ground today, which is amazing. But is there anything that you want to share with people that we haven't talked about so far? I just would love to encourage people to continue to pursue the right fit in terms of what you're needing. You know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people talk themselves out of the idea that working with a clinician is not going to be helpful for them because they get stuck in a rut with someone who's just not reaching them. Right. And I would love for people to be as discriminating about their providers as they are with, you know, lots of other areas in their life. You know, Mm -hmm. it's okay to say that this isn't working for you and please have those conversations with the people that you're working with. And the response of the person who's hearing that will be everything you need to know about whether or not it's the right person Mm -hmm. to guide you on your journey. Because if what comes back to you is defensiveness, then that's not the right journey for you. Yes. That's a great distinction. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I have so much love for you and and what you're doing in our field. So thank you. Thank you. Right back at (laughs) you. Thank you so much, Chantel, for being with us today. To find out more about Chantel and the Manor, you can visit us at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye-bye.